Lord, we thank you for your kindness this morning. You have breathed out your word uh, so that we can understand you better, so that we can understand how to relate to you better and for you to do a work in our hearts. And Lord, I ask this morning that you would allow me as your messenger to simply speak your truth, that your, your words would come through these lips, Lord, and, and your people who are here would have hearts that are humble and ready to receive. And Lord, those that may be here but don't know you would be uh, willing to listen to the truth of your gospel this morning. And Lord, would you bring medicine to uh, hearts that are sick? And would you, Lord, bring comfort to those that are struggling? And Lord, would you bring help to those who are just in difficulty? By means of your gospel, Lord, strengthen us today, we ask in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. You've heard the idiom or the expression, there are two sides to every coin. And um, often that is used uh, to consider, of course, the heads and the tails of the coin. That's where we, we, we understand there's a difference between those two sides of the coin. But the expression identifies two very different things that are so very closely related. Um, they almost seem opposites, but they actually work together for the same purposes. For example, someone might say great opportunity and great danger are two sides of the same coin. Um, the great opportunity is there, but there's also a great danger, and so you don't avoid the opportunity because of the danger. You, you, you press on regardless. But often it's an expression that is pointing to the fact that we're uh, only seeing one side of the truth. And that is very typical for us. We, we have a tendency to only see one side of the story. And, and at times we need to consider the other side of the coin to get the whole picture. And the two sides of the coins may be understood and interacted with independently, but they both go hand in hand. And friends, this is, this is so very important. It's almost like uh, two ballroom dancers. You have this, this man who's typically dressed in black, and he's you know, got his hair slicked back. They're always skinny. Um, and, and then you have this lady, typically who's not wearing black. She's wearing some other color to contrast. But when they come together, two individuals coming together, they, they're working in harmony around that ballroom dance floor. They're doing different things, but they are united together for the same Purpose. And there's a sense in which that is what happens with this idea of two sides of the same coin. And friends, that is what Mark is showing us this morning as we come to our text. He's showing us two sides of the same coin as it relates to the gospel. And last week we saw one side of that coin, and this week we will see another and let me just, just paint a picture for you a little bit about what our proposition or what this passage is going to be about. Last week, if you remember, we, we, we saw the fact that uh, people were bringing the children to be blessed by Jesus and the disciples rebuked them and Jesus explains there the simplicity of entering the kingdom of God. Children, hands raised up in total dependence on Jesus. And there was something just beautiful about that picture. Just simple children, childlike faith, depending completely and totally on him. But here, as we come to our present text, where a man with great possessions approaches Jesus and asks about what he must do to have eternal life, Jesus reveals the difficulty of entering the kingdom of God. And the difficulty here is that there is a need for total independence. And it's an independence from self. It's an independence from the entanglements of the world. So on one side you have this simplicity, on the other side you have this difficulty. On the one side you have this total dependence on Jesus, and on the other side there needs to be a total independence from things that will hold you or hinder you from embracing the gospel. And so as we think about this text from a structural perspective, you, you see that Jesus is encountering this man. Then he, he stops and he, he uses a, this as an opportunity to teach his disciples. And then at the end, Peter is kicking in uh, with a statement and um, a question, and Jesus responds to that. 
And so this text is progressively moving toward a focal point, which is found at the end of the text. I'm loving our time in the Gospel of Mark because we see these encounters, and, and they're not just like thrown there just to say, well, this is what Jesus did, and he went here, and this is what Jesus did. There is a theology going on here. There's something that, that Mark is wanting to communicate and show the people that are going to be reading his Gospel. He's trying to portray Jesus as the Son of God. And he's trying to, to emphasize what Jesus came to do. But he's also, in all of that, seeking to elicit from us, the readers, a response. And that is his goal. That is his purpose as he goes through this gospel. And as we come to our, our present text, we are in a setting where Jesus is on a journey Notice the, the beginning of this text. And as he was setting out on a journey, this, this journey is continuing now at the beginning of chapter 10 and it will end up ultimately uh, from moving from Galilee where Jesus will enter into Jerusalem. And so as he moves toward the city, as he moves toward the place where the Passion Week is going to begin and he's ultimately going to be crucified and he's going to die for uh, the sins of mankind what we find here is that Jesus is teaching and he's using these encounters to teach his disciples, those around him, and ultimately us. And that's why we've seen um, Jesus say on a number of occasions, this is what I am here to do. I am going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be, I'm going to be uh, abused by the elders that are there. I'm ultimately going to be crucified, but I'm going to rise the third day. And he says that a number of times. Mark 8, 31 and 32, Mark 9, 9, Mark uh, uh, 9, 31. And he's going to say it again at the end of chapter 10. And so we have this, this flow of, of activity that is happening in this chapter. The Pharisees were testing him on the subject of divorce, if you remember. The people were bringing children. That was last week. This man is, is asking about what he must do to have eternal life. And then there's going to be this request, this crazy request by the two disciples to sit on his right hand and on his left. And then we're going to encounter blind Bartimaeus. Um, so all of these have a purpose, and, and Mark is seeking to accomplish his purpose. But now for today, the issue is, the side of the coin is this difficulty in entering into the kingdom of God. And so we, we see this now in this encounter with this man. And so I've, I've I kind of identified it using this terminology the problem he, that is Jesus, exposes as he encounters this man. This man approaches Jesus and he is self-assured. He is ready to do whatever Jesus says. But as is so often the case, the agenda of this man is countered by the agenda of the Messiah. And, and hear this, the agenda of Christ always takes place and will always bring about his purposes in our lives. This man, the disciples, the readers of this gospel, and, and we who are reading this gospel now are about to be confronted with the agenda of Christ. We come with our own agendas. We come with, with our own frameworks, if you want to say, but Jesus is constantly picking them apart. He's, he's dismantling them, and he wants to replace them with his own agenda, his own purposes. And it's worth uh, us noting that we do come with these agendas. You may not realize you have them. You may not realize you have a certain framework of, of how you view life. You might even say, well, I've been part of the church for, for years. Okay, but you still have agendas. You still have frameworks that you, you catch from being in the world. And we should be thankful that Jesus wants to come and, and show us what the truth is. Now notice, first of all, this man. He, he comes and he is self-assured. He begins with this self-assurance. Unlike the children in our previous text, who came to Jesus doing nothing except responding in dependent faith. Here the man, the rich young ruler as he is known, comes to Jesus asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So not only is he willing to do, but he's self-assured that he can do 
whatever Jesus is going to say. He's anticipating that he can do what it is that is required. And we had a picture of total dependence with the child. Now we have a picture of one who is independent, who is wealthy, who is positioned, who's self-assured. And when we look at the parallel accounts in Matthew and in Luke's gospel, we are given that extra information. Not only is he a man who has wealth, but he's young and he is also a ruler. That's why he's called here the rich young ruler. But that's taking all of the accounts and putting them together. And it's no surprise then that he comes to Jesus sincerely. He's not coming to challenge Jesus. He's not coming to trick Jesus. He's coming with self-assurance, sincerely asking a question. So he's confident. He's ready for this encounter. He is then self-assured in his approach. Notice how Mark describes this man's approach, verse 17. And as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So we find him, first of all, running. He ran up to Jesus. This is not a a tentative, fearful approach. This is what you might call a confident, eager approach. Secondly, he's respectful. He's kneeling before Jesus. He's recognizing Jesus as the master, as the rabbi that he is. He doesn't comprehend that he's the Messiah at this point in time. He knows he's a great teacher. He knows he's a miracle worker, and he's coming asking what he must do. And then he comes requesting, and and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And friends, that is a good question. It is a question with eternal implications. It is a question that must be asked. And I'm sure that if you had a friend that you were interacting with as it relates to the gospel, and they came to you and they said, hey, listen, what, what must I do? They probably wouldn't call you good teacher, but they would say, what must I do to have eternal life, you'd be like, ah, oh, thank you. They're finally starting to get it. They're finally opening up now to, to be able to actually have this conversation. But as is true in many of Jesus' encounters, the man isn't prepared for what Jesus is going to say. He's expecting something quite different. See, he's self-assured. He's self-assured in his approach. He's self-assured in his answer And so let's think through what Jesus then, how he responds to this man and to this man's question. And then we will see this self-assured answer. First of all, Jesus responds uh, or appeals to the character of God. And notice what he says. And Jesus said to him, this is verse 18, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now what is Jesus doing here? You see, in Jewish thought, It is only God who is preeminently good. The expression is rarely used to describe anyone else. And that is the main reason for Jesus' response. This man is revealing who Jesus is, and he doesn't even realize it. He's he's coming and he's expressing his thought and his question with a, a respectful title, calling Jesus good. And it's just another one of those times in Mark's gospel where it's like, eh, eh, eh. here is Jesus. He's, on, he's revealed for you. You see him again now. He is the one who is being called good. And even out of the lips of Jesus, he says, there's no one called good except for God. Jerry Bridges in his book, The, the Practice of Godliness, this is what our men have been reading um, <clears throat> recently, And he suggests that God's kindness and goodness go hand in hand. You might say they're two sides of the same coin. And we often use these words interchangeably. Kindness describes God's heart disposition toward mankind. Goodness describes God's activity to bring about man's joy and happiness. God is good. It's an outflow of his kindness. This is who he is. So in other words... God's goodness is kindness in action, its words, its deeds. And that's why you hear people say something like, God is good all the time, and then some, right? He he is good all the time. And that is true. He is good. If anyone is good, it is God. But then he appeals to the commands of God. Notice what he says in verse 18. 
You know the commandments. He's speaking to someone who has been brought up in Judaism. And I mean, every, every Jewish boy grows up at least learning the Ten Commandments, right? I mean, this is, this is, you know, this is, this is kind of like, you know, John 3.16, right? For, for, for this, this is the basics. So he just goes back to the basics. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Now there's a part of us that bristles a little bit at the idea that anyone must do something to inherit eternal life. I thought salvation was all of God. It is. It is all God's doing. You contribute nothing to your salvation. It is Jesus who died on the cross for your sins. Totally get that. But understand here, this man comes and asks Jesus a question, and how does Jesus respond? <laughs> he says, this is something you need to do, right? He's, he's going he's gonna, to he's gonna answer using do language. Now, he's not saying you have to perform these works in order to be saved. But there is something that man must do. He must do something in order to, eternal, or, uh, to inherit eternal life. And when the man hears what Jesus says, he simply responds with, with full assurance. Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. You say, what an arrogant man. He's not arrogant at all. You say, why is he not arrogant at all? Because... Although we would, be, you know, we would tend to doubt the sincerity of his words, he's not lying. He, he truly believes what he's saying. He is, in his mind, a blameless man. Now, let me just point you to Paul's words about his pre-Christian days, and this is how he describes himself. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. See, the Jewish culture there at that point in time viewed a person <clears throat> in such a way that they were actually keepers of the law if they did certain things. So he, he said, I keep all those things, although he, he didn't, if you want to say, if you want to be technical, he didn't. But in that culture, it was acceptable to say he did all these things. Paul did all those things. He was considered to be a godly man. He was an upright man. So he's not being insincere. He's being very, very sincere. I've done all these things. He was a good, solid Jewish specimen. We move, however, from self-assurance to his response, which is going to ultimately be self-pity. But notice, notice how, how Mark brings us into the story to see the kind of, of Savior that we have. What kind of Messiah is this? What kind of person is Jesus? Here is a person who is struggling with the question, who's coming asking about eternal life. In verse 21 it says, And Jesus looking at him, what? Loved him. Now friends, we were just talking about this in our men's uh, small group this week. I think this idea of, of God's love has become so soupy and, and sentimental in our Christian culture that you almost want to stay away from God's love. But don't. Don't allow the distortion of truth be the means by which you are neglecting that truth. Understand the love of God for what it actually is, not the distorted kind of presentation of, of love. Jesus loved this man. Right? So Mark makes it a point to direct our attention here to Jesus' love before he gives us the record of the words of Jesus. Jesus loves people. He loves people who are self-assured and think they have it all together. He loves those who are moral, who are religious, who, and wealthy. He loves them even if they are sincere and even if they are sincerely wrong. Yet he loves this man enough to speak the truth into his heart. Even what if, if he has to say something that challenges the self-righteousness to the core, Jesus is not trying to push this man away by his words. He's seeking to welcome him into the kingdom. And so it's love with the words 
that challenge. How does the Apostle Paul say it? Speaking the truth in love. Friends, this is, this is just, again, two sides of the same coin, right? Speaking the truth in love. But so much of our Christian culture, they want love without the speaking the truth. Right? They don't want the, the hard realities of sin and wrath and, and the danger that comes with, with unrepentance. They just want to hear the love. But there is this balance that comes as we study the word of God. So friends, this should remind us that the common picture of, of Jesus as a mushy, sentimental lover of people is a distortion. And what Mark reveals here is that Jesus loves, but his love doesn't hold him back from speaking the truth. The gospel is good news. It is great news, but it is costly news. But it is news that reconciles sinful men to a holy creator. But notice Jesus' words. It's a hard and unusual response from Jesus. He says, you are still lacking one thing. Now, you know what? It's not a bad thing. I'm only lacking one thing? I mean, just one? That's it? Yeah, one little thing. Oh, can't you just kind of like set that aside? You know, it's just that little one thing. But for this man, this one thing was the whole thing that was hindering him from coming by faith to Jesus and entering into the kingdom his moral and religious consistency, the very fiber of his perceived right standing with God is insufficient. He has fallen short of the glory of God. He is still dead in his trespasses and sins. Even with his morality and his good deeds, he is still a stranger, an alien, an enemy of God. That's what scripture says. All our righteousness, this is filthy rags. Our righteousness doesn't, doesn't bring us up to a place where God says, oh, okay, now you're good enough, come in. That's not how the gospel works. So this is what you must do, Jesus says. Four words, go, sell, give, come. Go, first of all, you have something to do. So go do it. We're not gonna solve it here and now. You have something you need to do. There's something in your character, there's some, something embedded in your very nature that you must do in order to free you to come and follow me. So he says, go. Secondly, what is it? Sell. Now, there's a word here that's a really hard word. It's sell all that you have. Not just, not just a token. God, see, I... I, I, I I, I saw, sold all those old videotapes that I had in, in the garage to the library for like 10 cents, right? I mean, we, 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 we want to give God the, the least. No, he says, sell it all. Not just a token, but all of it. In other words, you must be like this little child who has nothing and is completely dependent on Jesus. So Jesus is seeking this man's nothingness. <laughs> and it's not sufficient just to say, go sell all you have. What's the next thing? And give the proceeds to the poor. I mean, some of you would sell all you have. You'd have lots of money. He says, all right, go sell all you have so that you have a bunch of money. Now give it to the poor. And in doing so, you are totally released. Now, it's interesting that the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4, in talking about progressive sanctification and a person who is struggling with stealing, <clears throat> would, would give counsel to that person to make something with your hands and then share it with someone in need. In other words, make something and give it away. Have the value and then give it away. That's, that's a good principle because what, what this man needs to do is he needs to be released. He needs to let go of what is holding him back. 
And so he goes all the way over. Now, you have to understand, I, I think we could, we could rightly say this man is coming and he's saying, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus is thinking in his mind, when you go and you sell and you give, now you can come and you can follow me. You can be a part of, of this group of followers and they will provide everything that you need because I am the one who is leading them. Now note, the command to sell everything and give to the poor should not be universalized and applied literally to every professing Christian. So we can't come out of this text and say, all right, everyone, go sell all you have. Give to the church. I mean, give to the poor, right? This is not, this is not teaching that. This is not a, a clarion call for everyone who is a believer to sell what you have and give to the poor. That is not what is going on in this text. As if poverty is morally higher than some kind of financial privilege. That's not what Scripture teaches. This was Jesus' answer to a particular person with a particular need. And he's saying to this particular person, your struggle what you're holding on to are your possessions, your wealth. This is what you must do. Notice the man's disheartened departure, verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, we're told here what was keeping him from following Jesus. He was a man who had great possessions. And friends, if we are honest, we who live here in the United States, even if we are classified as being poor, have great possessions. I remember growing up in England, middle class England, and I remember the big deal when we got a second car for our family. It was an old stripped down Mini Cooper, but it was a second vehicle, and now my mom didn't have to catch the bus to go to her job. She could drive this little Mini Cooper, and we're talking about, I mean, it basically was a, an aluminum can with wheels, right? That got you. We are, you know, our, our view of, of wealth and poverty is so distorted when you go to other countries, you realize that that, that poverty is so much greater than what we experience here. And, and the wealth that we have here, I mean, the normal life here is, is really, really rich. That doesn't mean that we're, we're being arrogant and all that kind of stuff. It's just simply saying we don't necessarily comprehend that we are actually so tied with our stuff. Because we are. He had much wealth and had accumulated much stuff, but Jesus says in Matthew's gospel, and you know this passage, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. That's Matthew 6, 24. You can't serve both. You say, well, I have money. I have money in the bank, and I'm a follower of Jesus. Yes, yes, yes. If you are a follower of Jesus, then Jesus then gives you Wisdom and direction and discernment and instructions as to what to do being a faithful steward of his with the resources that you had. But you're serving God first. And the money comes under that umbrella. And it's a reminder of those cold words that Jesus gave to the lukewarm church in Laodicea recorded for us in Revelation 3, verse 17. For you say, I am rich... I have prospered and I need nothing. Just, I mean, you read that, you're just like, wow, how could they say this? Not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And so this is how stuff distorts our view of our own need. We have what we need. Why do we need God? Maybe you're sharing the gospel with a coworker, and you're saying, you know, you, you need to consider the gospel. So I, I don't have any need. I, I got all the stuff I need. I got money. I got everything I need. Why would I need God? 
You see how the, the hindrance can, can be there because we have stuff, we have things that we think are all that we need. This man's reaction to Jesus' words are considered to be the saddest words in all the Bible and they reveal <clears throat> the tension that, is, that this text is proposing. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, there's this tension between the treasure in heaven, as you see there in the text, and the treasures that are on this earth or in this world. Which treasure am I going to value? Which one is appealing to me? And it's important for us to realize that Jesus is dealing with this man's grip on this world that he cannot let go of. But there are many other things, friends, that people struggle with to give up in order to follow Jesus. Let me just list a few. Hobbies. You might be sharing the gospel with someone. You actually might be a person who struggles with this yourself. It's like, well, yeah, but you know, usually on the weekend we go out and we have fun together on the boat or we go play golf or doing something like that. And the hobbies are there. And you say, if I'm going to follow Jesus, then that's going to have to change. And so what's the answer? My hobbies get a priority. Exit God. Um, your vocation. Sometimes the gospel call, when considered seriously, and the implications of the gospel call are considered, you might find that you are in a job, in a vocation, where you're like, you know, this isn't consistent with what it means to be a follower of Christ. I mean, maybe you're working for Planned Parenthood. And, and you hear the gospel. And you're wrestling with this, this good news. And you're, you're like, but I work for this organization who murders children. How, how can I do that? It may mean you need to leave that job. Sometimes we have to evaluate things that way. But maybe we'd say, no, I've got a good job. I'm moving up in it. And so I'm, out goes God. Or maybe there's a lifestyle choice. Or maybe there's sinful pursuits and passions. You don't want God in your life because you want these things. So you're, you have a grip. And you're holding on to them. Or maybe it's a relationship. Maybe you're in a relationship with someone who's an unbeliever. Maybe you're trying to pursue someone uh, or they're pursuing you. And you say, well, wait a second. No, 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 no. If I, if I step over the threshold and embrace the gospel, that means that I need to be humble before Jesus and that's gonna change then this relationship. Yeah, it's costly, friends. Following Jesus is costly and there are things of this world that will hinder us from, from stepping forward and embracing Christ as our Lord and Savior. So friends, it's a sad day when people who have been lovingly confronted with the gospel will not receive it because they are so tied to the things of the world. They reject the treasure of heaven for the temporary fleeting trinkets of the earth. And it's because the treasures of heaven don't appeal to them. They are undervalued. They are underappreciated. And this is where C.S. Lewis's well-known statement comes to bear. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what it is meant by the offer of a holiday or a vacation at the sea. If I said to you, hey, you want to go to the Disneyland Resort in Hawaii? Or do you want to sit in the backyard and make mud pies? Which one do you want to do? I'm happy making mud pies. It's because you don't know what it's like to be around Mickey. Well, maybe it's not that great to be around Mickey. I don't know. But you, you get the point. And we're, we're, we're like that child who's just making these pies and just satisfied with the pies, and that's all there is, when there's so much more out there. And that is the perspective here. The things that we say are treasures in this world do not compare to the treasures of heaven. They do not. And we've got to convince ourselves, we've got to preach the gospel to ourselves that that is true. Serving Christ is worth it. Why? Because the value of, of following him is so much better. Now, that could be a materialistic attitude, but there is this kind of reward dimension even in the gospel, but it comes as a result of simply saying, 
I am totally dependent on you. But now saying, I have to let go of this world. You see, we can't imagine the beauty, the joy, the utter satisfaction of the treasures of heaven. So we, in our own pygmy wisdom, hold on to the trinkets of this world. If only we could, we could just see that. So this is the, the problem that Jesus exposes. This is the story. And Jesus typically, after an encounter, <laughs> takes advantage of an encounter like that. And what he does here is he, he turns to the disciples. This is vintage Jesus. This is what he does. Here's the encounter. Here's what was said in the encounter. And now he turns to his disciples, and he is now taking on this role as a master teacher with his disciples. And, and he wants now to, to teach them kingdom values based on this encounter. And what we find here in this text are two things, the disciples' amazement and then the disciples' astonishment. We'll look at the amazement first, verse 23 and following. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. I mean, it's not like, wow. That's not the kind of amazement we're talking about there. It's like, what do you mean? That's the kind of amazement. I'm not going to repeat that, okay? <laughs> but it's a different kind of amazement because this was just like totally from left field, totally from, from you know, out, outside of the realm of their thinking. Why are the disciples amazed? Don't they understand that the difficulty of riches, how they hinder a fable res response to the gospel? But isn't that the unusual response that we have here? It's a window into understanding what is actually going on in this text. Jesus' statement must be understood in light of the Jewish attitude toward riches. See, the dominant Jewish view was that the riches um, were an indication of divine favor and a reward for piety, piety being holiness, right standing with God. So although Jesus' words were revolutionary in their time, and they're scandalous even for us today, Jesus did not condemn riches or possessions as evil in themselves, but certainly they are a temptation, certainly they, they can be a hindrance, they can be a diversion they provide a false security that makes radical trust in God difficult. But it's not surprising that the disciples are amazed at what Jesus is saying because it is so countercultural for them. If the rich, who are obviously in their minds blessed by God, if they can't enter the kingdom, can anybody enter the kingdom? Now, in contrast, the growing cultural attitude of today is to view the rich as the 1% and everyone else as the poor who will receive the kingdom. In other words, it is the poor who are the righteous, who are the holy, who are the pure, the rich, they're evil, right? That's cultural attitudes. I mean, there's a cultural framework, dynamic. But in, in Jesus' day, among the Jews, there was a different framework. There was a different understanding. And so Jesus uses an illustration here. And it has to do with a camel, and it has to do um, with um, an eye of a needle. Look at verse 24. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them, Children, isn't it interesting he says children? <laughs> children. How difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now the question here is this. Um, is this. Is this a camel or is this a rope? Because the word camel and rope in the Hebrew um, are actually very, sorry, in the Greek are very, very close. And so there's actually some question as to whether this idiom is actually talking about a camel or a rope. If it's a camel... The eye of the needle is considered to be a gate in the city, and just the picture there is like it can't fit through this gate, although they have never found this gate, okay? 
Um, so it's kind of a, a mute argument. Um, if it's a rope, the case uh, is, or it is thought that then this, this rope, this big rope, it's hard to get through an eye of a needle. How would you do that? Uh, but I think if you actually put the idiom together or the picture here together, the, the camel was the largest Palestinian animal and the eye of the needle was probably the smallest opening that is used. So this is kind of a ridiculous picture. There's just absolutely no way you can get a camel through the eye of a needle. It is impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God by doing something himself. So that's the amazement. And he uses this illustration, but that produces now in verse 26, the disciples' astonishment. And they were exceedingly astonished. Oh, what do you mean? I mean, it was one thing to say, ah, what do you mean? You know, you know, this, this rich person can't, can't you know, enter the kingdom. Now it's even worse. Then who can be saved? So the disciples are, are so thunderstruck by Jesus' words, they come right out. And, and, and say what is on their minds, then, then who can be saved? This man was blessed by God. He is a wealthy, a ruler, a moral, an upright man. He is the perfect Jewish specimen of a, of a righteous, recognized, and religious man. If you were to ask someone, who do you think is righteous and religious uh, uh, man or woman who by their life has done uh, much good, uh, for society, if you were to ask that question, let me say that again, who is, who is a, a righteous and religious man or woman who by their life has done much good for society? Different people will come up with different answers. Let me give you a few. These are the common answers. Number one, Mother Teresa. That's usually the one that comes, especially the Catholics, they will bring up Mother Teresa's wife because she, she served the poor, um, you know, I mean, certainly there's a legacy of that. Uh, more recently, in more Protestant realm, it would be Billy Graham, right? I mean, he is the country's evangelist, pastor, um, who had the ear of presidents in more recent years. And then, of course, other people would say Martin Luther King Jr. because of his peaceful approach to the civil rights movement, for which he lost his life. There are, all these are examples of people who did good in their own different Way, But in each of those examples, hear this, they all still fall short of God's standards in and of themselves. They have done nothing to contribute to entry into the kingdom of God. So although society might call them good, upright, and great examples to follow, Jesus in his kingdom gospel says they must each go, sell, give and follow as well as repent and believe the gospel. That is true for them, that is true for the rich young ruler, and that is true for us. So Jesus says, verse 27, he looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. It may be possible for a human being, but not for God. Man left to himself, they do things that are religious in nature. They might make him feel good. They might even be enjoyable to him, but they accomplish nothing as it relates to entry into the kingdom of God. It is impossible for man to bridge the gap between God and mankind. In other words, entrance into the kingdom is not a human Endeavor, whereby they, by doing X, Y, and Z, have the key to opening the door. Now, friends, I realize that, that many of us in here, we know this. This is, not, this is kind of Christianity 101, but it's good to remember it. But there may be someone here that this is new to you. And you've been trying to somehow say, God, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, and they're all good things. But that is not what God is looking for you right now. What God is looking for is for you to come totally dependent on him and totally released from all those things that you think make you worth something. 
You see, the disciples had a religious and cultural framework that they were bringing to their understanding of the gospel that Jesus was preaching. It has assumptions that morality and financial blessing equal the prosperity gospel. In their eyes, if there was ever a man who was godly and who deserved entrance into the kingdom of God, it was this rich young ruler. But now Jesus smashes that thinking to the core and he says, for all things are possible with God. It is simply saying that salvation is impossible when it is attempted by human endeavor and technique and efforts, but only with God is it possible. Now let's just step back a little bit here. Notice that last statement there in verse 27. For all things are possible with God. Oh man, that preaches. All things are possible with God. All things are possible with God. Now just understand this. Jesus is speaking about a particular topic in the context. He's talking here about conversion. You can't just launch off and say all things are possible. All things. He's talking about all things relating to entry into the kingdom of God are possible, but only possible with God. Hear this. God is limited by his own character. You hear people say, you can't put God in a box. Well, God puts himself in a box. God cannot lie. God cannot change. He cannot remember sins he's forgiven. He cannot fail anything that he has sought to do. He cannot break one of his promises. You know, I got all of that from a song that used to be sung in a church that I used to attend years ago. <laughs> and it was so great. Because it reminded me that, that God is a, is a consistent God. He puts himself in a box, and that's a good thing. So be careful when people say, you can't put God in a box. Well, sorry, he did. But know how he did. He is limited purposely. So far we've seen the problem. A man of wealth, character, and influence walks away from Jesus sorrowful because he is unwilling to let go of his great possessions. And then we've seen the confusion, the disciples' amazement and astonishment at what Jesus is saying because it runs contrary to the religious and cultural beliefs of the day, that morality, goodness, and wealth are insufficient as a key to unlocking the door of the kingdom. But now notice the promise that Jesus extends. Peter has been listening intently to what Jesus has been saying to the disciples, and of course, he has something to say. Don't you love Peter? Now what he has to say here actually is not a bad thing. I mean, he's listening, he's considering, and he turns to Jesus, opens his mouth. You never know what's going to come out of his mouth. But what he has to say is this. See, we have left everything and followed you. So there's, there's this emphasis here on we and everything. He's speaking for the disciples. We have left everything. Of course, that's hyperbole. They haven't left everything. But they left what they were locked in doing as men to come and follow Jesus. What he's doing here is he's, he's fearful of what he's hearing. He, he's begging by these words for affirmation that they have done exactly what Jesus is saying here that they need to do. And so after Peter speaks, Jesus turns from the warning of the camel and the needle to a promise. And notice what Jesus is driving, or says is driving this promise. What is the reason why disciples or the, the people seek to do anything? Well, it is this. He says, for my sake and the gospel. This is like a little, a little phrase. Everything hinges around that statement there in verse 29, right at the end of verse 29. I'll just read 29 and 30 here. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel 
who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. You see, for my sake and the gospel is the hinge. That is the focal point. That is the driving force. That is what is going on here. There's, there's leaving for the sake of Jesus and the gospel, and there's receiving as a result of Jesus and the gospel. Now, what is Jesus getting at here with these lists? We have this leaving and receiving thing going on. He's saying these are the most essential, natural networks of our relationships and allegiances. Homes, families, fields, if you want to use three words like that. They must all be forsaken. You have the the homes, then you have brother, sister, mother, father, children, and then you have lands. You see that, that grouping there? So if you leave for my sake in the gospel, you will receive a hundredfold, houses, family, lands. Now, he's not saying, oh, you're doing this for all the wealth. I mean, you're doing this for, for selfish wealth. No, this, is just, this is the natural benefits. Now, let me just try and paint the picture here for, for how it works for us. If you are a person who is an unbeliever. Remember that time when you were an unbeliever and you heard the gospel and then you, you embraced the gospel. You came like that little child dependent on him and you realized that in coming to Jesus that you had to forsake everything, that he is now your master. Okay. At that moment, when conversion took place, you now have a new family. My Nuclear family is not four, it's six. But I have a bigger family. That is all of you. This is what you and I have. This is what the world wants. They want community. They want to belong. They want significance. But in the church, that's what we have because we are one big family. Notice I didn't always use the word happy but we are one big family. That's why we can go different places around the world and walk into a church and they're followers of Christ and there's unity, there's brotherhood, there's camaraderie because it's the gospel that brings us all together. We have been given so very much simply because we have left and now we are Receiving, But we also have things that are taking place. He says, with persecutions. Notice that. <laughs> you, you, have this, you have this, all this family, and you have these persecutions. This is all part of what you receive. You got some good stuff. You got some, some, some stuff that might be difficult. It's honest, Jesus. Right? But he's saying now, and in the age to come, what? Eternal life. Do we, do we see that? Not just some pie in the sky thing, but as a, as a reality that is true, that is rich and full and glorious and beautiful. I mean, that is, that is something we want. But it's not just eternal life for my own purposes. It's eternal life that is, that is going to be fleshed out with God's purposes in mind. And everything that we're told about it is... It's a beautiful thing. I, I, there's a pivotal passage in Romans 12.1 that gives us a little bit of, a, of an understanding of our attitude here. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. When you have received, you're going to live out now, out of that mercy, out of that gospel, but you're going to live in a sacrificial way. And that's how we live out among family. So there's this leaving and there's this receiving. And then in this final statement here, which is kind of summarizing the whole text as well as reinforcing what is being said here, that many who, will, who are first will be last and they'll last first. Hear this. The logic of the kingdom is not the logic of this world. That's why when you talk to someone who's not a believer and you start talking about the things of God and, and how you're seeking to pursue Christ, they can just kind of look at you cross-eyed like, I don't, I don't get it. 
because the logic of the kingdom is different than the logic of the world. Right? The world is like, you know what, you've got to get ahead in life. You've got to do all you can to have the influence and the networks and kind of get the job and move up and make money and do all these different things. <laughs> and Jesus says, no, 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 no. Leave it all behind. Don't bring anything to your relationship with me except for yourself. What you must do is leave it and repent and believe. So contrary to the world's thinking. Now, let's just bring this to a close. Three quick final responses, interactions with this text. Number one, I do want us to be aware of the danger of the prosperity gospel. You say, well, whoa, where did you get that from? Listen, the disciples were living in a context where there was a form of prosperity gospel. You live this way, you do these things, you're going to be blessed. God is approving you. He, he recognizes you. He thinks you're great. And it was a false view of this relationship between man and God. And this prosperity gospel, friends, is prevalent. It is, it is rampant in South America. It is rampant in the, the lands of Africa. Um, and I would say, as a result of American Christianity going around the world, and it's, it's rampant here too. And it may have influenced your framework of thinking about the gospel and how to live it out, even your discipleship. It is subtle. If, if I am blessed in some way, shape, or form, that must mean that God is approving. Let, let me ask you this question. If our church grows to a thousand within, let's say, six months. Could it be that God is blessing? Could it also be that God is not blessing? Absolutely. In other words, the American mentality of the growth equals success. Hey, that's what happened in the early church. The apostles got up and preached, and look, thousands were added to the church. That should be happening today. Well, that is happening. People are filling pews, but that doesn't necessarily mean the gospel penetration and conversions are actually taking place. We have a framework, a view, I might say a worldview that is shaped by a lot of things and, and God is constantly chipping at that, showing us what is a kingdom worldview, a kingdom framework. So friends, be, be careful with the prosperity gospel. It would say things like, listen, the reason that you're sick is because of some sin in your life. That's the opposite side of the coin to the prosperity gospel. The reason you're suffering, the reason you're having all these difficulties is because, of, and it may be true, there may be some truth to that, but it's not a guaranteed statement that the fact that you're sick or the fact that you're having trouble is a result of sin in your life. And so sometimes... Um, we can come to wrong conclusions. And friends, just you know, to, to, to kind of really step on toes this morning, um, we sing songs like God Bless America. And I think maybe subtly we actually think that, that God's blessing has uniquely been placed on America and that blessing now stands and, and as long as we sing that song, God must be blessing and if, if, hey, we're still wealthy and we're still prosperous and we're still the number one power in the world, that must mean that God is, a, is approving of us. Well, I don't think God is too happy when he travels with his mind's eye down to a place called Hollywood. I think there's a lot of things there that would cause him to go bleh, right? Not just there, but all over the place. I think there's a lot about the United States of America that he is not pleased with. And we got to be careful that we don't have a framework that says, well, this is God's country. Well, I understand the language we use. There was a, a prime minister of Denmark years ago who believed that Denmark was God's country. He, God was going to, um, you know, he was going to build his kingdom through Denmark. I can't remember his name, but he ended up fighting 
a battle against um, Bismarck, the German or the Prussian leader at that point in time. And, and, and Bismarck went to a meeting with the British and the Danish and said, listen, you are gonna be destroyed. You are gonna be totally obliterated. Please, please don't do this. And the guy's like, no, this is God's country. This is God's purpose. This is God's will. And they had the battle. It lasted for quite a while. And, and, and the Danish people were decimated because they believed that God was blessing the country. My friends, just hear this. We gotta be careful here not to equate prosperity with God's blessing. It isn't always one equals the other. Secondly, not only the danger of prosperity, but now the difficulty of letting go. <laughs> Listen, the, the people in the gospels here are having difficulty with letting the world go. The disciples are struggling with this. To be sure, this was radical news for the readers of this gospel, and certainly for us. This hits us because we are a prosperous people. How tied are you to this world so that you're not willing to say to Jesus, whatever you want me to do, I will do. If you tell me to go, if you tell me to do X, Y, and Z, I'm willing to do it. If you're an unbeliever considering the gospel and you're saying, I have to relinquish this, this is, I'm not, Jesus isn't saying to you, go sell everything you have and be a pauper. He's simply saying, I am the priority. I am master of all that you have. You come freeing yourself from everything that you think makes you worth God looking at you and finding favor in you and saying, God, I am totally dependent on you and I bring nothing to this. Two sides of the coin of the gospel. Finally, I just want to remind you of the delight of following Christ. I think it's interesting, Psalm 37, four. The psalmist says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. You say, that sounds like prosperity gospel. It could if it's misunderstood. But you see, if you delight yourself in the Lord, what happens? You're saying, I'm gonna spend time in prayer. I'm gonna spend time thinking about God. I'm gonna spend time opening his word and I'm, I'm, I'm meditating his word. I'm allowing his word now to affect my heart. I'm allowing him to, to chip away and to, to nudge and to pull things out of my life that don't need to be there. So ultimately what God is doing is he's changing my heart and my desires now are being conformed to his desires. So when I delight myself in the Lord and I'm doing that according to scripture, my desires then are a reflection of his desires for me. And friends, it is truly a delight to follow Jesus. We sang songs this morning that reflected both sides of the coin. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. When peace like a river attends my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot, you have taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. A total dependence on God, but a total relinquishing of whatever this world says is important. In that last song, it was family. The loss of a wife and daughters at sea birthed that song. And he says, it is well because I have a God who's worth living for and knows what he is doing. Friends, what a picture we have. What a consideration we have. And my challenge to you, friends, is to look at your lives and ask yourself, what of the things of this world are holding me back either from stepping by virtue of conversion into the kingdom or stopping me from living out my discipleship in such a way that would honor God? Am I so tied to this world that I'm not freed 
to live for the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, help us today to consider this text. Lord, we, th we thank you for this, this encounter that Jesus has with this man because, Lord, it, it reveals so much of the struggle that we can have. And yet, Lord, we thank you that, that you don't just pull back and, 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 and knock him silly and you don't just pull back and, and, and treat the disciples badly. You desire to teach both your love as well as the truth of the cost of this gospel. Lord, help us to come to you afresh today in our hearts saying, Lord, I come with nothing except myself, totally dependent on you. For your glory, do as you will. I ask you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.